I just want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever wasted time in an argument with someone who refuses to use logic or just flat out ignores facts? If you are a parent, yes. Uh, we actually have a saying in our house with our youngest son. Um, and typically what happens is my oldest, who they're all in service now, and so I have to, uh, you, I'm not just going to name them, but my oldest will be arguing with my youngest. And uh, those of you who know Danny, he, he's very literal, very factual, and Logan is not. Um, and so Danny will be trying to tell Logan something, and they'll just be arguing and going back and forth. And so I have a phrase in the house. Danny, what do I tell you when you're in those arguments? Yes, arguing, arguing with Logan is like trying to eat soup with a fork. And so it's just not worth it. And this happens also in another area uh, with sports. Sports fans, they argue about sports, right? Uh, Joey, right? You, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? And so the word fan comes from what? Fanatic. And it's something that just, uh, a passion that just sometimes overwhelms all logic. And people want to, especially sports fans, they want to be right instead of getting it right. And this is what we find in the, today's passage uh, with religious fanatics, okay? We've been going through the book of Matthew, and we've been seeing that uh, the, these religious fanatics have been trying to argue with Jesus, and he really doesn't waste time with them. They'll ask him these questions, and he'll just sort of skirt around the questions because it's really not worth his time. They've already made up their minds. It's going to be like eating soup with a fork. And so, if we can go into the text, we're obviously in the book of Matthew. Uh, we've made it to finally to chapter 16, and we're only going to be talking on four verses tonight. And it says this, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning... Today will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret, interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. A wicked and adulterous generation look for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left and went away. And so the first thing that we're going to be talking about is here is Jesus is being tested by the religious leaders again okay this is uh, they've been trying to get him trying to paint him into a corner trying to have him at checkmate and just when they think they have him he always finds a way to sort of turn the question back at them and make it about them and it happens again and so what we see these religious leaders with there's two groups you have the pharisees and the Sadducees, and you hear them uh, throughout the Bible, but I want to explain what the difference is. There are differences between these two groups of people, and really, they normally are opposed to each other in the Jewish society. 
And let's go through a couple of the difference, differences here. We're going to talk about the Pharisees right now. They are usually working class and make a living uh, from a trade. They're more conservative and fundamental in their theology. They believed in the supernatural. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. Uh, they believed in the afterlife, we'll say. They believe in the angels and demons. Uh, but they held that these traditions of the rabbis were equal authority to the scripture. So not only did they have scripture, but they had these traditions that uh, they equated to the Old Testament law. They were very separatist. They wanted to have uh, maintain purity of, of Judaism from the Gentiles. They wanted to stay separate. They obviously hated Rome. Um, and then you have the Sadducees. And they were generally aristocratic. They were very wealthy by their corrupt involvement and profit from the temple sacrificial system. They made wealth, uh, made wealth by running money-changing tables at the temple. And so when, remember uh, the account of Jesus driving out the money-changers of the temple with a whip and he has this uh, righteous anger towards them, those were the Sadducees. Uh, they cared nothing for the traditions or the scriptures. Uh, they had no problem making religious, moral, political, or cultural compromises to further their interests. So essentially, they did whatever was in their best earthly interests um, to get ahead. They were theologically liberal and denied the supernatural, so they didn't believe in an afterlife. Uh, they didn't believe in mir miracles, angels, demons, or um, the resurrection from the dead. And since they denied that there was an afterlife, they had to get all that life had to offer now, and they didn't care what rules they had to break to get it. And so we have these two sects of Jewish society that are always in opposition together, and they have come together in unity against Jesus. Um, Jesus brought them together, but obviously we're going to see not in a good way. They came together in opposition to Jesus, but they had come together nonetheless. And so as we go back and we read the first verse, it says this, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. And so when they did this, it, uh, they sort of thought they had him in a trap. It's the, sort of that old playground saying, you know, this situation is a heads I win, tails you lose. I used to love that. Heads I win, tails you lose. And these religious leaders are, think that they have Jesus uh, right where they want him. And here's the thing. If Jesus cooperated with them and agreed to prove himself, he was going to do so on their terms. So he could have easily called down a miracle from heaven and been like, see, I told you so. But they were doing it on his terms, on their terms. And so, in a way, by doing that, he would legitimize them as having authority over him. So he wasn't going to play that game. But if Jesus refused to show them a sign, as they expected him to, 
they would plan to use his failure to pass their test against him as evidence proving that he was not the Messiah. So it seems like it's a, a catch-22 for Jesus. Either way he answered, the Pharisees and Sadducees expected to come out ahead. Um, this is purely speculation on my part, so take this with a grain of salt. But I, I really think that in, in their minds, uh, that if Jesus would have had submitted to their demands, it wouldn't have satisfied them. There would have been more demands and more demands and more demands and ultimately tried to use him, sort of, tried to pull the strings of how Jesus does things and try to make him fit their political system or their religious system or whatever they wanted him to be. But really, uh, their number one reason for unbelief is that they did not want to submit to Jesus nor his kingdom. And I think that's, if we look outside of the church and the main reason that people do not believe in the biblical Christianity is because they realize that they have to come to a point to submit to Jesus and his kingdom. Everybody wants to do what they want. I'm guilty of that sometimes. There's things that I wish, I'm just selfish. My wife can attest to that. Please don't, please don't ask her specific examples. But they had the Son of God with them and they saw his works. They saw him change water into wine they saw him uh, speak to a storm and the storm obey him. They saw him call out to a dead man and he came, uh, came uh, back to life after being dead for four days. They, uh, he walked on water. He drove out powerful demons just with a single word. And he would also read people's thoughts. They saw all of this and yet they still denied him. Uh, they preferred their lifestyle and, and what it afforded them in life. The power, the status, all of this to their, because of their religious systems. Again, they wanted to be right instead of just getting it right. People do the same thing today. Uh, we may not have Jesus walking around performing miracles in front of us, but we still have quite a bit of evidence to support the claims of Christianity. And I just want to let you guys know, like, our faith is not a blind faith. Um, we have archaeological evidence, historical evidence, scientific evidence, circumstantial evidence, and more than 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in the birth, life, ministry, miracles, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we can also throw in countless testimonies uh, by millions of believers throughout the centuries whose lives have been radically transformed by Jesus Christ and his teachings. So let's go through some of the evidence. I just want to hit on a few but let's talk about archaeological evidence. There have been more archaeological discoveries to validate the Bible than any other book in history. There has never been an archaeological discovery to discredit Scripture. 
Let's talk about historical evidence. We have more early manuscripts of the Bible than any other book. We have more early manuscripts of the New Testament alone than any other book. Um, scientific evidence. These are scientific uh, discoveries that have happened in the past centuries that the Bible had in them from the beginning. The earth is round, Isaiah 40, 22. Infinite number of stars in Genesis 15, 5. It's amazing. With technology growing, we build stronger and more powerful telescopes and satellites, and we can get images, and we just see the vastness of the universe. Uh, let's talk in, uh, in medicine. In Leviticus 17, 11, it says, Life is in the blood. Blood is necessary for life. It was a f just a couple centuries ago where the medical uh, procedure was to bleed people. And obviously, that is not a good way to heal people from sickness. The life is in the blood. Life originated in the sea, Genesis 1. Talks about how the first animals created were sea creatures. And we can find the water cycle in Job 26, 8. You can talk to my kids. They will sing a little song after church about how the water cycle works if you want them to. I doubt they will perform for you, but maybe if you ask them nicely. We also have circumstantial evidence. We have four biographies of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all four were writ written, written by eyewitness accounts. All four are consistent and stand up under examination and are factually accurate. Not only were the lives of Christ's disciples transformed, but they died for their belief in the resurrection. I think that's interesting too. Not only did the, the, his disciples live and they gave their account, but in doing so, they knew that they were going to lose their life. Why would they do that for something that didn't happen? I would not do that for a lie. Christianity exploded and spread in, in the midst of intense hostility and persecution from both religious and civil leaders. Let's talk, talk about prophecies. Uh, the prophecies of, of, that were fulfilled in the Bible, Jesus would be born a virgin, and that was 700 years before it happened. That Jesus would ride on a donkey, that was prophesied 500 years before it happened. That Jesus would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, something very tiny and, and very specific, was prophesied 500 years before it happened. And the last one I want to share, that Jesus would be crucified 1,000 years before it happened. And the interesting thing about this fact is that uh, crucifixion was not even invented at that time. So we see that there is evidence that we have that our faith is not blind faith. And just like the religious people who saw all these miracles, they had to come to a decision to either accept or reject. And us having all this evidence here, follow the evidence and then you have to make a decision. What are you going to do with it?
Are you going to decide to submit to God or not? Here's the thing today. It really doesn't matter what your belief system is. You have to place your faith in something. You have to place your faith in something. Are you going to place your faith, even if you say you believe in nothing, that is a form of faith. And so we see how Jesus sort of wheels out through that test. And we're going to see his response to it. He takes uh, sort of this old saying that they had, and we know it too, and it's uh, red sky at night, sailors, delight. Red sky in morning, sailor, take warning. I believe that's uh, um, pretty, pretty scientific, right? In verse 2, let's look at his response. He replied, when evening comes, you say, it'll be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it'll be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to uh, interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. And so he sort of takes this phrase. I think ours sounds a little bit better. It's a little more catchy. But he takes this uh, and uses it sort of as an ironic way to, to answer them. He says, you think you can discern the, te- the climate and the weather and you, you're confident in that, but you cannot see what's happening right in front of you. You cannot discern the signs of the time. If these religious leaders were really looking and trying to get it right, they would have realized that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, with them. It's funny because they boast that they can do that, and Jesus uses something as unpredictable as the weather. And even now, with all the technology that we have, the weatherman's correct how many, what percentage of the time? It's not that easy. Jesus condemns them for their hypocrisy. They felt confident about predicting the weather that they saw around them, but were blind to see the sign regarding Jesus' messianic credentials right before their eyes. You want proof that they cannot discern the signs of the time? The proof is that they are continually asking for a sign. The Jews of Jesus' day had a proverb saying that if all the hypocrites of the world were divided into ten parts, Jerusalem would contain nine parts. They refused to listen to God on his terms, and so Jesus cleverly says, no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. And we'll read it in verse 4. Wicked and adulterous uh, generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And this sounds very uh, similar uh, to what we read a few weeks back in Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, 38 through 34, it says this, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, 
Very similar. A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so here, in both situations, Jesus did not give them the answer they were hoping to get. And he says, I'm not going to give you a sign yet. And he tells them of what the sign is going to be. He said, just like Jonah. And so let's think back. What happened with Jonah? Well, Jonah was known as the pouting prophet. Uh, he, God told him to go to Nineveh, and he didn't want to. He goes, Nineveh is this way, I'm just going to go this way. And he went the complete opposite way. And while he was on a boat traveling away from where he was supposed to go, a huge storm comes up and Jonah realizes this is God's judgment, this is my fault. Throw me off the boat so that you guys may live. And so uh, he gets thrown off the boat and he gets swallowed up by a big fish, right? And he was in there for three days and then eventually spit out. And he went to Nineveh and... Through this, God ends up saving Nineveh. Now, he didn't do it with the best attitude. He, he got to Nineveh and said, repent or die. And that was pretty much his message. And, there, and, and just using that message, the whole city converted and realized who God was. And there's actually historical proof of Nineveh being this horrific place, and then all of a sudden, it's not. And so they, he was using this example of what was going to happen to himself and that he was going to be crucified on the cross, he was going to be buried for three days, and that he was going to come back and be the Savior for humanity. That was the sign. He said, this is what's going to happen. And eventually, guess what? It happened. The sign came. And yet, most of the religious people did not see it. And even when Jesus responded like this uh, and, and told them that there was going to be a definitive and undeniable sign that would forever, forever prove that he was the Messiah, the, no one understood what he was saying at that time. But when it did happen, the disciples and the people who were following him, they understood finally what that sign was and what that meant that he was truly the Messiah. So, do you want to be right or do you want to get it right? That is what we need to figure out this evening. You see, uh, a lot of people say, well, I believe in my own way. I believe in my own way. And really, to me, that does not make any sense at all. You can believe a lot of things, and it doesn't make it true. The kids are in here, so I'm not going to speak on Santa Claus. I can believe that I can dunk. I can't. 
Those days are long gone, and they never were there anyway. We can say, I don't believe in gravity, but if I throw something up in the air, it's eventually going to come back down. Belief does not necessarily make something true. Belief in something only counts when the belief is based on truth. In John 14, 6, he said, Jesus says this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, there's a lot of people that will say, well, that just doesn't seem right. It's not fair, but what if I'm a good person? Well, the only way into heaven, the only way to have an afterlife with God is through Jesus. Good things are good, but that's not what gets us into heaven. What sign would Jesus have to do to prove that he is the Son of God? That he, his death on the cross is sufficient to cover all your sins and that his resurrection from the dead means you never have to fear death again. What would it take? What sign would convince you? I think, uh, I think it's interesting because um, I'm talking about truth, and there has to be absolute truth. Any other way just doesn't make sense. And so there's a friend of mine who, um, he goes to debates, and he's much smarter than myself. And I sit and I talk to him about spiritual things in the Bible, and I'm just, I don't want to talk. It's like one of those things where, uh, I don't know. You're much smarter. You just, you know what you're doing. Just go. Um, But he says this. He says that there are no such thing as atheists. There's only suppressors of truth. And why does he say that? In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says this, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also sent eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has created every one of us with this need or with this knowing that we are eternal beings. If we can sort of block everything out, it's just something that we inherently know. Like there is something else out there. And just the only way to deny that is just suppressing the truth. And this is one of those things where people, it's evident if people, where people are at. And as I said earlier, that the number one reason that people just don't believe in God is because they want to do what they want. And the idea of submitting to somebody else is just the worst for them. What will it take to get you to believe? We have all the evidence 
right here. We've gone through all the reasons why we can trust God's word. Not only is this a book, but it is also, it, it calls itself the living word. And it's, even though it is old and ancient, it is also living and speaks to uh, us today, is relevant for today. Now, I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know where um, your belief system and where your past has brought you to. But I would like to just challenge you. If you're having struggles with unbelief, just ask yourself honestly, why is that? What is your hang-up? If there's something impeding you from really trusting God at his word, what is that? And just be honest. And if it's something that you can sort of work through yourself, I challenge you to do that. If it's something that you need help with, you have questions, I challenge you to ask questions. Uh, come to me, ask me. I can do my best. Ask someone who works here at the church, someone who's in charge of a ministry here at the church, and we would love to have that conversation. Without judgment, without judgment, we love the fact that you can be wrestling with these questions. But what will it take for you to believe? Do you want to be right? Are you hoping that you are right? Or do you want to get it right? Let's finish in a, with a word of prayer.